when we look at the difficult circumstances of our life, there are two deep questions that we ask either verbally or maybe just in our minds. And that is, does God care and is God good? It is in these times of difficulty when we need to remember the promises of God and we need to remember the past works of God. And as we do, we should be able to answer both questions with yes. Yes, God cares, and yes, God is good, even in these difficult circumstances. This younger generation of Israel that we've been studying has been no stranger to difficult circumstances. They have tasted the death of family members, right? The older generation had to die before they could enter the promised land. So now they're here on the brink of entering the promised land and their family has to die, their older generation, their parents, grandparents, grandparents, and so on. So they've tasted death in that way. They've also had to experience uh, the, the difficulty of wandering through the wilderness and just waiting on God. They've have, had to uh, use patience and... and um, and be forbearing with one another even. And yet, despite these troubles that they had faced, they had not forgotten God. They had not answered no to those two questions, does God care and is God good? They actually remembered God's past works. They remembered the goodness of God. And as a result, they are destined and equipped to receive the land of promise as they will do. So we're going to study this morning chapters 27 through 30, but I'm just going to read chapter 27 for us together. So would you follow along in your Bible as I read? This is the Word of God. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, and Hagla, and Milcah, and Terzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway at the tent of the meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give, his, uh, uh, give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers... Then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and, and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them 
and who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him, in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Here in Numbers chapters 27 through 30, God is preparing his people to receive his promise, specifically the promise of this land, this land of Canaan that they had been anticipating for some 400 years because God had promised it to Abraham. And so God is preparing them to receive this promise. And he's already done this, really. The preparation for this uh, reception of the land has been happening throughout the wilderness, but now he's kind of tying up the bows, so to speak. He's finishing up the the remainder of what needs to be done before they step across the Jordan River and and start to um, to take possession of the land. And so we're going to see this in several ways. First, we see that God prepares the people to receive the land, including those with no inheritance. God prepares the people to receive the land, including those with no inheritance. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. So Israel now is standing on the precipice of receiving the promised land, And as they are, one family uh, raises this concern to Moses and to the residing high priest, Eleazar. These people, these ladies, were from the family of Joseph. Their father, Hefer, had died and he had no sons. And so normally what would happen is when he died, the, the inheritance would pass on to his sons. But since he had no sons, they were a little bit distraught because his his inheritance would pass on to someone else, and they would lose, in a sense, their family name from being remembered in the, uh, among the people of Israel. His family name was about to be made extinct. And so the daughters asked for a special consideration in verses 3 and 4, and they, they say, listen, our, our father died. He didn't die in the sin of Korah. I mean, that would be high-handed rebellion against God. But they did die. Our, our fathers did die, and they did die because of their sin, and, and they recognized that. But um, they, they were not to be completely cut off from the people having no inheritance, so they should have an inheritance. And the other problem is that we, we have no brothers. Our father had no sons. And so um, what we're asking here is that you would move us up to second in line with regard to the inheritance. Now, the normal, the normal structure, according to verses 8 through 11, is that the inheritance would pass to the sons. If there were no sons, it would pass to... Uh, it would pass to the brothers of the of the one who died. If there were no brothers, it would pass to the uncles. If no uncles, then the nearest male relative. And what the girls were asking, the daughters, is can we move up to second in line? So instead of it going from sons to his brothers, can it just go from, from sons, we, he has no sons, and just right to us? And Moses, notice in verse 5, seems to agree with them because he doesn't say, no, you know the law. He's recognizing that the law of Moses is, is in some sense, a settled law, but it's also a developing case law. That there are going to come up 
various cases that God is going to have to address as he does here. And Moses seems to recognize the conflict that there is here with the daughters not getting an inheritance. And so he brings it before the Lord. And the Lord grants the request that the girls ask in verses 6 and 7. And not only does he grant their request, but he puts this into a law so that this would be perpetually the case for all the daughters who, who had no brothers, whose, whose father died. We might look at something like this and say, well, why include this in the narrative? I mean, is this just like he, Moses didn't have anywhere else to put this, and so here's a good spot for it? Well, we'll consider the context, right? The younger generation of Israel is about to receive the promised land. The older generation has died off. Only Moses is alive from that older generation and Joshua and Caleb. And, and the older generation's time in the wilderness was marked by what? It, it was marked by unbelief and, and um, disobedience. They didn't trust that God would bring them into the land. And so what these daughters are saying is instead of saying what they're the previous generation would say, why did you bring us into this wilderness to die? Right? We've, now we've seen our parents die. Why did you bring us here? They don't say that. You know, we want to go back to Egypt. Instead, they, they essentially say, God, we trust that you're going to bring us into the promised land. And so as we're considering the ramifications of actually entering into this land and being there with no possession, because our fathers died and he has no sons, we actually trust that you're going to do this. That's why we're asking this question, do you see? See, I would suggest to you that this, these daughters are acting in faith. They have this eager anticipation that God is going to fulfill His promise. They are going to enter the land. Despite all of the opposition that they've seen, they've recognized the good works of God. They've seen the good character of God. And as a result, they're ready to accept His promise and they want to be included in it. And so this is really... Uh, a high mark of, of, there should be a high mark of praise that we have for these daughters because of their faith in God and His promise. So God prepares His people to receive the land, including those with no inheritance. And then at the end of the chapter, we see that God prepares the people to receive the land by giving them a new leader. Moses is going to die on Mount Pisgah in Deuteronomy 34. He has to preach a final sermon uh, before he does that, and he's going to sing a hymn. Uh, to the people of Israel. But in preparation for Moses' death, God prepares Israel to enter the promised land with a new leader, a new Moses. Moses actually asks for one. God, would you, would you grant, verse 16, would you appoint a man over the congregation, a capable leader? And Joshua is that man. Joshua is going to follow in the footsteps of Moses in that he is a man like Moses who trusts God despite the, uh, the poles, so to speak, Right? If you take a poll of the people, uh, the people are not too excited about following God, especially during the time of Moses. And, and Joshua's much like that. He's a man of character and confidence in God. In verse 20, Joshua's given authority. And then verse 23, he's commissioned to lead the people. And we learn here that the people are not, they're not appointing their own leader. They're not voting or something like that in order to, to, to determine what kind of leader they want, but rather God is appointing their leader. It's God who has chosen Joshua. And so Israel can be sure that the next steps forward, the conquest and all that is to follow during the life of Joshua is ordained by God and done according to His will because it's His man who's leading them. So God prepares the people in, 
uh, to receive the land, including those with no inheritance. God prepares the people to receive the land by giving them a new leader. And then in chapters 28 and 29, God prepares the people to receive the land by reminding them about the necessity of sacrifices. He reminds them about the necessity of sacrifices. Now, if you've already read Exodus 19 through Leviticus and then into part of Numbers, you've already seen the sacrifices that God is going to restate here in chapters 28 and 29. In other words, Israel already knows what God expects in this regard. And so in some senses, there is just repetition. It's something that we've already seen. But in another sense, there, there's actually a, a difference in the types of offerings or sacrifices that are required. In fact, there are going to be more animals required than, they, than were required before for, for many of these festivals. And the reminder of sacrifices was to show Israel that they were about to enter the promised land and that the reason that God was bringing them to this place was so that they could worship Him. Do you remember what God told Pharaoh through Moses? Let my people go so that they may worship me. That's Exodus. That's the story. Exodus 1 through 18, let my people go. That's God getting his people out of Egypt. Chapters 19 through 40, so that they may worship me. It's all the, the laws that are required in order for people to come into to a relationship with God. And so this is more an extension of that idea. God's not just delivering his people just to, to free them from, from the tyranny. But He's delivering them into this place so that they can be in a settled place. They can use their lives to worship God. And so God is reminding them about what's going to happen when they enter the promised land. So you're going to get all this inheritance. It's going to be really exciting. You're going to have your own land. You're finally going to be able to settle down, build houses, not temporary dwelling places. But that's not what it's all about. Ultimately, it's about worshiping Me. And so He spends two chapters here um, to, to explain to us the importance of these sacrifices. I mentioned that these, many of these sacrifices are larger than they were before. And the change in the, the size of the sacrifices or the number of, of animals that had to be brought, I think is also uh, points to the idea that God is going to give them an abundant land. Right? What is the, the other name that we call the promised land? It's the land that flows with what? Milk and honey. It's just this land that's just abundant in resources and it's going to be a place where they are going to be able to, to uh, increase the size of their flocks very easily and readily. And it's further proof of God's provision that if, they can, if they're required to offer this many sacrifices, then it assumes or implies that they have to have more animals than they did before. They're kind of wandering the wilderness. They, they're never at a settled place. It's hard to, to build um, their flocks. And so their farms are going to be well supplied they're going to have to be in order to provide these offerings. So these offerings are broken up into four kinds of offerings in chapters 28 and 29. First, there are daily offerings. Second, weekly offerings. Third, monthly offerings. And fourth, you can guess, yearly offerings. So daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. So here are the daily offerings every single day, seven days a week. They were to bring two lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. These were the, the... lambs that were provided as an atonement for the sins, but also as a perpetual burnt offering that the, that the altar was constantly burning. There's constantly fire coming from the, the, the altar there as a symbol that they constantly needed to be atoned for. They constantly needed to be forgiven 
of their sins. There's this continually burnt, continual burning both day and night along with these two burnt offerings, one in the morning, one in the evening. They also had to, the, the priests had to bring a grain offering and a drink offering in verses 5 and 7. So daily offerings, verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see weekly offerings, the Sabbath offering. Every Sabbath, they were in addition to the morning and evening sacrifice that the priests were to bring, they had to offer two additional lambs on the Sabbath. Verse 9 reads, Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as, as a grain offering and a drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath in addition to the continual burnt offering and his drink offering. So, so keep doing your daily sacrifices. But on the Sabbath, instead of two lambs, you're bringing four lambs. You're bringing two additional ones. And, and this is a reminder that that God requires um, that worship be done in His way, along with the grain and drink offerings. Uh, this was going to be a, an additional burden on them to provide these sacrifices. And thirdly, the third type of offerings is found in verses 11 through 15, the monthly offerings. We could call these new moon offerings. So notice verse 11, Then at the beginning of each of your months you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls and one ram, and um, so these are the, the new moon offerings. Uh, the, the Jewish calendar was fairly simple. Uh, every new moon marked the first day of the month. So the way that it would work is the first time that someone uh, spotted that there was a new moon, they would come and tell the priest, and the priest would verify it by two or three witnesses, and then the next day would be the start of the next month. So every month was either 29 or 30 days. And um, the problem is, is that there are 12.4 new moons in one rotation of the earth, so you can't have 12.4 months. So what they do is they add an extra month every two or three years. That's what the, the Jews would do on their calendar. So with this new moon offering, or with this new moon, every time a new moon would come, the start of the new month, on the first day of the month, they would bring these additional offerings. And God required, in addition to their daily offerings, or if the Sabbath happened to fall on the first day of the month, you still have to bring your four four. Uh, uh, lambs, but, but then on the first day of the month, in addition to those, you also need to bring two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs. We see that in verse 11. Two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old without de- defect. And then along with that, the grain and the drink offerings in verses 12 through 14. So this day, this first day of the month, in addition to the day that they would set aside for worship, the Sabbath day, Saturday, uh, this first day of the month was treated like another Sabbath so that if, let's say, the Sabbath fell on the last day of the previous month, the very next day, you'd also treat like a Sabbath day because it was supposed to be a day that was set apart as a holy day, a holy convocation unto the Lord, and, and this is to, to happen every month. So you have the daily offerings, the weekly offerings, the monthly offerings, and then what takes the most amount of time to work through are the yearly offerings. Beginning in chapter 28, verse 16, God reminds them of five yearly offerings that, that required additional sacrifices. So keep bringing the daily offerings, the two lambs. Keep bringing the Sabbath offerings, two more lambs. Keep bringing the, the first of the month, the new moon offerings. But in addition to that, whenever you, fall on, whenever you have these uh, yearly festivals, then make sure you bring these offerings as well. Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. So let's look at the first one here. Passover, verses 26 
or verses 16 through 25. Passover was celebrated there, um, uh, according to verse 16, on the 14th day of the first month. It was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover lasted one day, and it was to remind them of what happened when the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelites and did not kill their firstborn back in Egypt. Um, so it lasted one day. And immediately following that, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was it lasted for seven days. And this reminded them of the time which they could not put any yeast in their, in their bread, right? They, they were in a hurry to leave Egypt. And so part of the symbol... Uh, the, the symbolism there is that they would, every one week a year during this Feast of Unleavened Bread, they wouldn't have anything in their house that had yeast in it. And this would be a reminder of what Israel had to go, to go through and what God did for them in delivering them from Egypt. On each day of this celebration, they were to bring two bulls, one ram and seven male lambs that were to be offered according to verses 18 and 19, along with the grain and the drink offerings. This was a celebration meant to be a memorial for when God delivered their parents and their grandparents from Egypt. The second yearly offering that they were to um, commemorate or, or um, have a festival for was the Feast of Weeks. This is uh, also known as a Pentecost. It was seven weeks after Passover, 49 days after Passover. Israel was to celebrate this Feast of Weeks or also called the Day of First Fruits. It was time when Israel would bring in their harvest and as part of their recognition that God's the one providing for them in the fields, that they would bring some of their, their gifts to God, including animals and grain and, and so on. And so it was designed to remind Israel that their harvest was something that was produced by God so that that all that they owned belonged to God and they were, should be happy to, to, to give a portion of that back to Him. In other words, they were just managers like we are. Everything that we own belongs to God. We simply are managers of His resources. And God expected to give back to Him the best of their crops, the first fruits. And along with these crops and the normal drink offerings, they would bring two bulls, according to verse 27, two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs. The third... A yearly offering that they were to commemorate was the Feast of Trumpets in chapter 29, verses 1 through 6, the Feast of Trumpets, where God expected um, them to do this on the first day of the seventh month. So, again, every new moon, the first day of the month, every first day of the month, they were to bring, uh, they were to, to, to bring their normal offerings. But here on the seventh month, they, were, they had to bring even more. This was even more special new moon celebration in addition to those offerings that they would give on the first day of the month, they would also bring, verse 2 says, one bull, one ram, and seven male lambs. And then, of course, with these animal sacrifices, more grain and drink offerings. And then, fourthly, the Day of Atonement. Perhaps the most well-known yearly offering that the Jews celebrate is found in chapter 29, verses 7 through 11, the Day of Atonement, which comes from the Hebrew, which is Yom Kippur, uh, it was to be held on the 10th day of the 7th month and they were to bring their normal offerings that they would bring on that day. And then, in addition, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, um, along with their grain and drink offerings. A, a time when this was the one time when the high priest could enter into the most holy place, but he had to bring his sacrifices and incense and, um, and it, it would be a national forgiveness or 
or covering over of the sins of the people. And uh, so this would only happen one time a year, and it was on this special day, the Day of Atonement. The final yearly offering um, that was to be commemorated was the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 29, verses 12 through 40, also known as the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingatherings. It's where all of Israel was meant to come back to the place of the Promised Land, the Canaan, eventually through the years. That's what would happen. And they would live in tents for eight days in order to remind themselves of what Israel went through and what God had done for them in the wilderness. It was to help them to think back on that time. And so this would take place on the 15th day of the seventh month for eight days. And each day they would bring new offerings. In verse 13, they bring 13 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs. In verse 17, on the second day, they bring 12 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs. And then day three, 11 bulls. Day four, 10 bulls. Day five, nine bulls. Day 6, verse 29, 8 bulls. Day 7, verse 32, 7 bulls. And then on the final day, 1 bull, 1 ram, and 7 male lambs in verse 36. So here you have Israel just over and over again coming back to the tabernacle and eventually the temple to bring these sacrifices and to remind themselves about what God had done for them. And over the course of a single calendar year, God required 113 bulls, 37 rams, 1,086 lambs, 2,000 pounds of flour, 1,000 bottles of wine, and 1,000 bottles of oil. Again, this highlights first the abundance that God would provide for them, that they would be able to bring this much, that this much resource back to God and offer it up in fire. It also highlights God's desire and willingness to meet with His people. God's saying, listen, I am so serious about you coming into My presence that I'm going to lay this all out. Just uh, day by day, week by week, month by month, what exactly you have to do in order to meet with Me. And it also highlights the need for His people to worship God on His terms. They couldn't just uh, flippantly walk into the tabernacle or the temple later and, and just say, God, I'm here, I want to talk to you, and I want, I want to bring my um, problems before you. They had to bring the sacrifices that God required. They had to do it according to God's terms, through God's priests, and, and in God's time. And that's exactly what, what God required of them. So God prepares the people to enter the land, including those with no inheritance. He does it by giving them a new leader and then reminding them about the sacrifices. Finally, in chapter 30, God prepares the people to receive the land by reminding them about the seriousness of vows. The seriousness of vows, specifically vows made directly to God. Moses seems to place this here because of the fact that offerings and vows are connected. Look at chapter 29, verse 39. There he's talking about the yearly offerings. And he says in verse 39 of chapter 29, You shall present these to the Lord at your appointed times, Besides your votive or your vow offerings and your freewill offerings and your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. So when you make a vow, make sure you complete it. He was saying there. So it naturally flows into chapter 30 to say, by the way, these vows are very serious. One of the ways that you um, show your seriousness about this vow is you follow through on it. You fulfill it by, by uh, offering the sacrifices that you promised. So that's one reason that, Paul, that Moses puts it here. Also, keep in mind that Israel has been in 
a state of opposition and uncertainty with regard to their current state and their future state, this future conquest that they're going to be a part of. And, and as they're in these places of battle particularly, what do people tend to do during times of battle? Right? We, call it, we call them foxhole prayers. Right? That is, in times of battle, when we recognize that we are about to die, what we often do, and there's nothing wrong with this, is we make promises to God. And so this has probably been happening throughout the wilderness and is going to happen in the conquest as they're sitting in a foxhole praying to God. And God's saying, when you make that vow, make sure you follow through on it. And so God wants to make it clear before they enter into these vows and maybe after some of them have already made them, He wants to make sure that they follow through on them. First, He gives a general principle in verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 2, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So, basic principle here in verses 1 and 2, don't break your vow to God. You make a vow to God, keep it. It's better not to make a vow at all than to make one and not keep it, um, as God says in other places. Um, But then he clarifies the principle in verses 3 through 16. He says, effectively, a woman is bound to her, her vow except for in a few cases. In verses 3 through 5, a single woman was bound to her vow unless her father disapproved. So because she's under the authority of her, her father, when she makes a vow in her father's home, if he agrees, then she needs to follow through. Or if he doesn't say anything, then she needs to follow through. But if he disagrees and says, no, that's a rash vow and I'm not going to let you fall through on that, then the, the vow is invalid. In verses 6 through 8 and then 10 through 15, a married woman was bound to her vow unless her husband disapproved. So if the husband was passive or if he approved of her vow, then the vow needed to be followed through on. Uh, for example, Hannah in chapter in 1 Samuel 1.11. Remember when she made a vow with regard to Samuel's life? Apparently, uh, her husband's standing right there and he doesn't act against her. He doesn't say anything. And later on in the text, it seems like the vow of Hannah becomes the vow of her husband as well. That is, that it's, it's valid. It needs to be followed through on. In verse 9, a widow or divorced woman was bound to her vow. Um, and then a summary in verse 16. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife and as between a father and his daughter while she's in her youth in her father's house. So the importance of vows reminds us, reminds us that God will bring his people into the land, but also that God expects His people to be holy. You know, the world and the, the pagan nations are quick to make vows but not follow through on them. And God's saying, you will not do that, especially when they are to me. He expects their society to be marked by truth speaking, both to Him and to each other. So let's think about some implications that we can draw from this passage in a, the, these four chapters and apply it to our lives. Number one, God's faithfulness is sure. God's faithfulness is sure even though the fulfillment of His promises might be delayed. In one sense, Israel had to wait an additional 40 years to receive God's promise. Right? They, they knew that they were going to receive the promised land. They had been delivered from Egypt, but they had to wait. But in another sense, if Israel was paying attention, particularly after the spies came back with their report, they would have known that God had not given up on His promise. The only thing that was keeping them from the promised land was their unbelief. The only reason that he delayed was he was waiting for a generation of people who would trust him. 
And so the, the fault or the delay in the reception of God's promise was no fault in God and His faithfulness. It was all in the people and their lack of trust. The reality is that God is faithful and He is worthy of our complete trust. His faithfulness is sure. Number two, God desires fellowship. It's hard to get away from this idea when we read through these four chapters. God desires the fellowship with His people. He doesn't, when He thinks about the sin of His people, just say, I'm going to wash my hands of them. I'm done with them. I, I just, I'm just tired of trying to deal with them. The fact is that God desires fellowship with His people. And the reality is today that God's great purpose in orchestrating the events of your life is because He desires fellowship with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And you can be sure of that because of Romans 8.28. That He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and to those who are called according to His purpose. He has a desire to enter into relationship with you. God's pursuit of fellowship with His creatures was evident in the garden. But even after the fall, God didn't abandon His desire to fellowship with His people. And so if God is seeking for you to have fellowship with Him, then should you not seek to have fellowship with Him? And in chapters 28 and 29, these daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly sacrifices should have reminded Israel that their life was not just about worshiping Him one day a week, but it was about worshiping God always with their whole life, that all of life is worship to God. Yes, there should be a time in which, like Israel, we come together and assemble with other believers, but, but they should also have recognized that every part of their life was worship, that they don't just leave worship at the door when they leave the, the, the assembly of God's believers. So what about us? We are not Israel. God doesn't require animal sacrifices for us. God doesn't require us to come to the tabernacle or to the temple to have fellowship with Him. But the same principle should apply, and that is that all of our life should be worship to God. So let's think about these four parts of their worship, and we'll do them in reverse order, yearly, monthly, weekly, and daily. Are there any expectations that God has for us on a yearly basis that remind us of God's provision, of remind us of what God has done for us. I mean, we have a, a, a holiday that's coming up pretty soon, Good Friday and Easter, that reminds us of the death of Jesus Christ, that should happen on a yearly basis to remind us of what Christ has done for us. The celebration of His birth at the end of the year. Maybe the new year that reminds us of new beginnings and new mercies. And so there, there should be a recognition on a yearly basis of certain, um, certain uh, memorials that have taken place from a Christian perspective that we ought to be thinking about. What about on a monthly basis? Is there something that we do to remind us of God's goodness and His provision on a monthly basis that we don't do every week or we don't do every day? And I would suggest that our celebration of the Lord's Supper each month helps us to remind us of Christ's death. Right? That that it's not something that we just, well, we just assume. We all know about Christ's death. I mean, that's why we're here. Uh, but, but we, Jesus says, as often as you do this. Now, that's not, not required that we do it monthly. We just happen to do it monthly. Other churches do it weekly. Other churches do it less frequently. But, but whatever the case, it should be a reminder to us of the death of Christ. What about weekly? We meet together weekly as we're commanded in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 10. We should not 
that, that, that we should um, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That we should encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this weekly meeting with believers keeps our minds focused on what is most important in life because we can get lost, right? Through the waves of life that kind of cause us to drift off a little bit. Even though we may know all of life is worship, it's, we start to drift a little bit and, and we need to be back with believers singing the same hymns as they that, that are, uh, that are ref- a reflection of the truth of the Scripture and listening to the same Word and, and acknowledging it through obedience. And then, of course, daily, I think we ought to be seeking to worship God in our own personal relationships by praying and reading Scripture. We shouldn't, again, leave worship at the door. We shouldn't leave worship here in this building as if this is the only place we really do worship. All of our life should be worship and we should be reflecting on God's goodness and thinking about our own lives in relationship to Him. God desires fellowship with us and He's given us so much. And do we not owe Him our life and our worship? Then finally, God is the one who initiates reconciliation. God initiates reconciliation. Fellowship starts with God. Fellowship, however, cannot happen Our fellowship with God cannot happen apart from God's initiating work. That is, that all reconciliation with God is initiated by God. We were enemies of God, hating God and loving our sin. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no ability to come to life. God was the one who had to initiate reconciliation. God was the one who had to grant life to us. God had to breathe life, spiritual life, into us in order for us to be reconciled to Him. God initiates reconciliation. And when He does, the cost is not cheap, is it? The cost of we, sinful human beings, coming into a relationship with God who is perfectly holy is not cheap. And so today we should be reminded again of the great cost of fellowship with God. For the Old Testament Israelite, it was thousands of animals whose blood was spilled for the forgiveness of their sins. But for us, we're reminded that the perfect Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, had to spill His blood to pay for our redemption. His life was the only thing that would be adequate to bring us to God. And the promise that each Christian has embraced is available to every one of you, even if you're not a Christian today. But in order for His blood to cover your sins and to bring you into fellowship with God, God calls you to turn from your sins and to to, um, understand that no amount of good works will save you. Because God requires absolute perfection. That if you have sinned in one way, you're guilty of the whole law. None of us can attain absolute perfection in this lifetime. And therefore, in place of absolute perfection, God will accept faith in the one who was absolutely perfect, Jesus Christ. Here's how the Bible states in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ today, is a good time to do it. If you don't understand what this means, would you please talk to me or one of the members of the church? God is faithful. God desires fellowship. And God initiates reconciliation. He's done that for you by sending His Son. And so accept His call of salvation and trust in Him today. And if you're a believer, recognize the great cost that was paid in order for you to come into a relationship with God. God initiated that reconciliation with you. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful.